Hey guys, it's Emma and Shannon. And welcome back to our podcast, She's an Engineer. In this episode, we're going to talk about a book we recently read called A Lab of One's Own by Rita Colwell. We're going to talk about Rita Colwell's life because the book kind of starts off and and follows her throughout her academic career in STEM. And she was born in 1934, so it covers many decades and talks about the struggles that women had in academia, specifically in STEM-related academia fields, and how the industry and fields have changed over those decades. So I'll hand it off to Emma to kind of talk about Rita's background. Yeah, so I guess we'll talk about like, not really talk about her like early childhood, but let's like start from like when she was in college. So uh, Rita Caldwell went to Purdue University um, and she graduated in 1956 with her Bachelor's of Science in Bacteriology. That's the study of bacteria. And after she went to Purdue, she then re- also received her uh, Master's in Science in Genetics from Purdue as well. After she did her Master's of Science, she ended up doing a PhD at the University of Washington Um, in the field of aquatic microbiology um, and her PI. The principal investigator was John Liston, um, a microbiologist there. And aquatic microbiology is basically just like the study of like the microenvironments, would you say, of like ponds and oceans and aquatic environments. Yes, I think it's also important to note that the book goes into great detail on the struggle she had finding graduate institutions that would accept her and finding a PI too. Like it was really hard for her in the 1950s to get funding for her PhD in science because if women were to get their PhD at that time, they are expected to go into some sort of homemaking or education field. So it was it was a long time coming, but luckily she was able to find a really good supportive PI. Yeah, it was really good that she was able to find someone, but I know like along her way to getting that PhD, she encountered a lot of PIs and even like other women scientists who were not necessarily super supportive of her career decisions or like where she what she wanted to do. And so we'll touch into that a little later. Yeah. Yeah. But it was also kind of hard for her to decide what university to go to. I remember it was a big point in the book. Um, I know at some point she was like considering going to medical school and she she decided to go to University of Washington, I think, because of because of the PI. Is that right? I think so. Another thing she mentioned was that a lot of women, the women who were going for their PhDs, either they didn't get any funding like the men or they just didn't get the same amount of funding for working in labs. So it just was very unequal and hard and there were restrictions. Like some people, if you were an unmarried woman trying to get your PhD, then you seemed almost promiscuous. Like that's the way the book wrote about it and people didn't want 
you to be their PhD student, especially if like they were a male and you were a female because it could look wrong. But if you were married, they also didn't really want to accept you because they figured, oh, you're just going to have kids in a few years and be a stay at home mom. So she went she went through a lot during this time. Yeah. I think back then it was kind of a lose-lose situation, like mm-hmm. not very good either way. Um, not welcoming to to any sort of women. So after she did that, she ended up doing her postdoctoral fellowship at the National Research Council in Ottawa, Canada. I think that by the time she had done that, she had already uh, married her husband. I think when she was doing her PhD, she had already married her husband. Um, but in general, I would say, like, her biggest career accomplishments are, first of all, she she was the first woman director. And I think one of the first few or the first, like, non-hard science directors at the NSF, the National Science Foundation. Is that correct? Like, is would that be correct to say that she was the first non-hard science? One of the first non-hard science. Yes, because they talked about this a lot, that the National Science Foundation had mainly directors that were in engineering or in physics or in chemistry, which were seen as almost the superior STEM fields at the time. So being someone with a background in bacteriology and microbiology she she was i think the first one in that sort of field of study right and she was also the first woman Mm -hmm. oh in 1998 we should mention that too yes that is important she held the position for six years um wow that was like right right around when we were born (laughs) Mm mm-hmm but that does that doesn't seem that long ago so I don't know if that makes me surprised. But yes, uh, other than that, she's also um, recognized widely for her research, her study on global infectious diseases through water sources and its impact on global health. And I know that she did like a whole study regarding infectious diseases and drinking and bathing water, um, mostly due to like mostly pertaining to its role in the developing world. I remember in the book, she went to India and she taught them to like fold cloth in a way to like strain out the water um, to make it better or safer for them to drink. Yes. And specifically, she did a lot of research on cholera. And at the time, people believed that cholera, even when it was dormant um, when there wasn't any outbreaks of cholera they scientists believes that believe that it was staying in the intestines of humans and then somehow making it and moving to other humans through bodily fluids but she actually found out that cholera was naturally occurring and i believe she found it on some creatures in the chesapeake bay so she discovered that cholera when it's dormant it can live in brackish waters and specifically she did some research in the chesapeake bay and found that cholera vibrio attached itself to either like 
shellfish or shrimp or crabs and that's how it, it survived during dormant periods and then if someone ingested that water with the cholera then they could become infected and then it would spread that way yeah like it's um less a just bacteria disease but it, it's it's like a vec it's more like in her terms it's more of like a vector borne disease like malaria which is like spread by mosquitoes or mm-hmm. or like Lyme disease that's like carried by ticks and that's why the like the mesh cloth thing or the the cloth filter worked really well and later when she studied it she actually found that the sorry cloth filters nearly have the rate of cholera so that's a lot without any like type of like specialized filtration system it's just cloth but it's amazing to see like what um you can do and you know i think that's a good solution because sometimes the simplest solutions are are the best ones and like the least expensive Mm -hmm. so i guess going back to her work at the nsf um at the nsf she was a huge proponent of increasing the number of women and minorities in science and engineering um, in general, and she was very interested in developing better, like, K through 12 science and math education. While she was at the NSF, she also uh, was responsible for doubling the funding to the NSF Initiative Advance, which supports the advancement of women in academic science and engineering careers. So, I mean... She's she's really about like bringing more women into and en- into engineering in general and and science. Like even though she didn't have that type of I guess like mentorship when she was going through her academic years, she wants other people to have that. Yes, exactly. That made it reminded me of one specific part of the book. So her PI throughout her her PhD program was a male, but he was very supportive of her and her studies and during this time women weren't really allowed to speak at scientific conferences it was either frowned upon or i guess not many people would attend your session but there were instances where he would be prepared or like put his name on uh, a conference presentation and say he was going to give a presentation on something and rita would be tailing along to help out with it and then he would claim he was sick or like couldn't make it to the conference which allowed rita to give really big presentations as uh, a woman in science at that time so i think even though her her mentor wasn't female she had a very supportive male mentor during those years Yes. No, I think that's really good. Like, he definitely supported the advancement of women in science, or, like, for her specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, at the NSF, she got, like, the Navy, actually, to, like, take a woman um, on board to, on board, like, a um, submarine research cruise or a research ship um, in general when, I think... They were looking for important implications in global warming. And she was, like, she basically, like, told the Navy, even though the Navy was, like, very wary of getting, like, bad press for having a woman on a submarine ship, 
and conducting and conducting research she like really pushed them she like basically forced them to take this woman onto that submarine where they ended up making important discoveries about climate change like evidence of thinning ice volcanoes erupting from the arctic seafloor um relatively warm atlantic ocean water moving into the arctic ocean and contributing to ice melting so lots of things that are like really important to to global warming research and and just like global warming that we like talk about now so Mm -hmm. i think that's really important and then they were published in nature which is i think one of the bigger biggest uh scientific publications or journals Mm -hmm. So aside from her work at the NSF, after she completed her term as director in 2004, she ended up becoming the chief scientist at Canon U.S. Life Sciences and served as the chairman until 2006. Um, And I think also during this time, she... And even now, she did a lot of work at the University of Maryland. Like, she's, like, a faculty lecturer, I think. And she has, like, a research lab there, I believe. Mm-hmm. And she also founded the company Cosmos ID in 2008, which is a bioinformatics company that wants to make the world a healthier and safer place by developing various types of equipment to identify microbial activity in a variety of ecosystems. So I think she did a lot of work throughout her lifetime and she published this book. <laughs> yes, I think it's really amazing that she started off more in academia and doing research and and studying bacteria and microbacteria. And then she ended up running the NSF and, and then forming her own business. So she touched on almost all areas of like potential careers in STEM in in her lifetime, which is just amazing and had many things to overcome during that time. Okay, so now I think we can talk a little bit more about like what we thought were like important points that she brought up in the book. Like she mentioned like many case studies um, or like many, many research articles, many research studies that were published um, in order to like back up some of the claims that she made in the book, specifically about like obviously female in science. That's what we talk about on this podcast, but more about like females in academia. There was a really interesting case study or really interesting case that she brought up in the book about Ben Bars. So Ben Bars was a a successful scientist and Ben Bars actually had transitioned from Barbara. So transitioned from being a woman to being a man and in that transition he realized like the big disparity between like how women were treated or he had like evidence from his own life in comparison to like how how women were treated in academia versus how men were treated in academia i remember i think there was like one quote in the book where like someone went up to ben bars or ben bars was like like listening to some people like after a talk or he had heard it in passing Um, And someone said 
yeah, I like Ben Barr's work like so much better. I think it's so much more like reputable. It's better than his sister Barbara Barr's work, even though it was the same work and the same scientist. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important to touch on because I think like that's how part I think part of the feminist movement was like created for for women in, in academia because I think like as a person who has that kind of perspective like it's it's not like you can make the case for oh like oh a woman is just like inherently less good at science than men or they're just like not as intelligent as as men which is definitely not the case but I think a lot of people have made that case or, like, women are just, like, less capable as, at science than men. But, like, you can see that it's, like, the same person but and, and the same work, but people are just judging it differently based on who they think is, like, presenting the scientific research. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And something else I wanted to touch on was that women in academia who are successful do not necessarily support actions that would help other women in academia be successful. And we mentioned this a little bit before, but during the 1950s and 60s, when Rita was studying um, in college, she noticed that some women weren't really over the top and excited to help support other women get through science and for for who knows what reason but it also wasn't like a great situation for women who really wanted to support other women because if you had a whole group of women researchers then you were you were looked at as less than like your research wasn't as high quality as groups of men researchers so Rita even talked about this when she ended up getting her PhD and having her own research labs and it was like wanting to bring in a lot of women but also just realizing that unfortunately you also had to bring in men too just for the sake of them being men because you would be more reputable so I think that is something that's really really interesting and at this time I don't think Rita really took any of the women who were not supportive personally and I even sometimes come across women now a days that don't seem over the top about wanting to help more women get into STEM and obviously there's nothing really you can do it's just realize they have very different opinion and you want your career to to look different so just doing what you can from the individual level and and uh yeah making your way through yeah no I think that's really like encouraging that now it's a little it's it's different from Mm -hmm. from before like personally at some labs that I've worked at it's been like majority female versus majority male which makes me feel kind of hopeful (laughs) for women in science but I think that also brings up that point about like they've done studies about disparities in hiring of women versus men um, in academia and they want to see like okay do women hire more women do men hire more men or like what's the case in this and so I think they presented 
labs, they presented PIs with the same resume, just with like the name changed to like a stereotypical male name versus a stereotypical female name. And they actually found that even though the resumes were identical, they found that both women PIs, uh, both female PIs and male PIs preferentially hired males like more than women. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, that checks out, right? Like based on her experience in academia when, when like women, women feel like they do have to hire males Mm -hmm. um, in order to become a successful lab. A good portion of the book also talked a lot about Title IX. So why don't we touch a little bit about Title IX? Sure. So Title IX was enacted in 1972 by Congress, and it was signed into law by President Richard Nixon, and it prohibited sex discrimination in any educational program or activity receiving any type of federal financial aid. And... Representative Patsy Mink is recognized as the major author and sponsor of this bill, along with Edith Green and Senator Birch Bayer. I think it's it's interesting because this book this book talks about the development of this bill, and it was it was kind of like snuck through Congress. The only way during the 1970s they knew they would be able to pass this bill is without making a big deal about it. Like, oh, you need to go out and vote for this bill and like encourage your your senators to do so. So they did it not under the table, but they just didn't make a big deal about it. And they had Congress vote on it. And, you know, it, it kind of it went through surprisingly in, in 1972. And this has been a great basis for prohibiting sex discrimination nowadays it's it's often referenced to yeah i think like if i remember correctly from the novel they like they attached it to like a different bill that was being passed through congress like it was like a like it was like paid a couple pages or something like at the end Mm -hmm. of this other bill that everyone had voted for not that they like misrepresented what they were passing through Congress, but I think they knew that less people were going to like read the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, which is funny because it was there. They if they would have read it, they would have seen it. <laughs> yeah, but I guess they used that knowledge to their advantage when they were like trying to pass the bill. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we're glad that it's been passed. I remember in the book, I was like super surprised that uh, Title IX was more about like was more about sex discrimination in like educational programs, mm-hmm. because oftentimes, like now, when you get Title IX trainings, at least in colleges or like in graduate programs, you talk more about like Title IX in in how and how it relates to sports as well as how it relates to like sexual harassment Mm -hmm. um and not i guess and less about like diversity in genders within a specific program Mm -hmm. 
So and I, I think once it passed in 1972, it was pretty impactful because it specifically said that it prohibited sex discrimination in educational programs that received federal funding or fi- federal financial aid. And I think that was a big part because if you weren't uh, promoting more women, supporting more women going into your educational institution like universities, then I think they were threatening to cut financial aid. So it was a big incentive along with just wanting to support more women. Yeah. Also, in 2011, um, Title IX, they uh, issued a guidance that's made it clear that Title IX protection against sexual harassment and sexual violence applies to all students, including athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's really what like we think of when we think of when we think of Title IX when we think of Title IX in schools. But yeah, I just wanted to to let everyone know that that was passed in 2011 um, and then in 2016 they also issued guidance on protecting transgender students under Mm -hmm. title IX. so like prohibiting sex discrimination encompasses discrimination based on a student's gender identity including transgender status so Mm -hmm. yeah and also it says in june of 2021 the interpretation clarifies that it protects against discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender gender identity. So it's it's really interesting to see how this bill has transformed to encompass a lot more minority groups and and help them. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really good that they're trying to include all of the groups that could potentially be discriminated against under this bill like in in i guess like uh colleges and other educational institutions yeah so if in a future episode if anyone is interested we can like go through some title nine case studies and go a little bit more in depth about title nine and maybe like topics about like sexual harassment and discrimination um, and things like that even though i know that we did that through the implicit biases podcast episode as well so i guess like my favorite thing about the novel i don't know i i really liked i really liked the entire novel but we talked about this before but i really liked the ben bars like example in the book because I thought that was a really good example for comparing, like, responses to uh, academic success in males versus females within, like, one, like, study subject, basically. Yeah. What about you? So I think my favorite part is just how this covers so many decades and how science, the field of science and engineering, has has changed so much since the 1950s. It's interesting reading about, it's not great, it's like, it's sad reading about how awful it was in the 1950s, but it's just, it's interesting to see all of these things they had to do just to get a PhD and just to be thought of as equal as their peers and it makes me feel very lucky that 
I'm going through this in 2021 and yes, I still have struggles, but I am very grateful for the women that came before me and were able to blaze the trail. Wow, that was very well said. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think it's it's great. There's lots of women out there that have even like made it possible for us to just discuss our struggles as women in STEM. Um, even like through this podcast, if if there weren't women like this, I doubt that we would have the like ability or the outside support and the or like the confidence even to like start something like this Mm -hmm. yeah that is that is very true and I feel like that's also why we created this to just talk about it with other women and other men and share stories and our experiences and I do highly recommend to read a lab of one's own you can find it probably like at any like bookstore I think we got it on Amazon I also got it I got it at the library so it's it was written last year I believe it's a pretty recent book but you can probably find it at the library too yeah okay and if anyone has any other book suggestions for us especially about women who are like trailblazers in STEM please like let us know Um, we're always happy to take more book suggestions for our book club and thank you everyone for listening to this episode and we will see you guys in two weeks bye Bye.